Guys, you know, in uh, literature broadly or Bible specifically, some of the best known phrases or words are from the creation account in Genesis 1. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, uh, what well, was the Spirit of God was hovering uh, over the surface of the waters. Um, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that it was good. God separated the light from the darkness. The light he called day, the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. It goes on from there into the creation account. And you got God separating light from dark, separating landmass from water. You've got God creating life forms, the sky, you know, in the air, on the ground, in the seas. He's got the plant life for everything. And you get to day six, and of course, everything's been leading up to day six. All of this stuff is fine, it's grand, it's glorious, but sort of nothing is as it's meant to be until you get to day six. And on day six in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image, and we'll give him rule and authority over our creation. He's going to be our, our stand-in, our authority, says the Trinity. And in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female he created them so the pinnacle the crowning glory of god's creation there at verse 27 is god has put his image bearers on earth and you get into chapter two and it takes a portion of the creation account in chapter one and it expands it and you see that adam was formed out of the dust of the ground and god breathes into him the breath of life adam becomes a living soul and it's interesting that you know in genesis one god created male and female in genesis it doesn't work that way. There's this pause. Adam gets up and he sees God's creation. The animals come through. Adam names all the animals. See, he's the Lord of God's creation. He's God's representative on earth. He's naming the animals because he's their authority. And then he's marched all the animals before him and Adam starts to clue in that there's male and female in all of these life forms, but it's just me. And of that one thing in the creation accounts, God says it's not good that the man is alone. So he puts him asleep, he takes out a rib, he forms Eve, he forms the woman. And Adam understands when he wakes up and God presents Eve to him, Adam says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken from man. Now you've got all kinds of things going on there, but one of them is this. Adam named the animals because he was in authority over them and Adam names Eve because he's her leader. In the English world, we tend not to get that. The Hebrews had no problem understanding that. The one who names has authority. So in God's creation account, you've got this thing in which God creates his image bearers. They're like him, male and female. There's a plurality that's still a unity, just as the Trinity was. And at the end of chapter two, verse 31, it says God looks out over all of his creation and he says, it's very good. And we've got to pause and take that in. Everything God created there, the roles of men and women included, male and female, one as a helper, that's one of the terms that's used of her, of Eve, a helper, and Adam as the sometimes called the federal head or the leader. God looks at all of that and he says it's all very, very good. Now imagine if one of the angels that Job tells us was present at creation. Imagine that one of those angels comes up to God and says... You know, part of this just doesn't seem right. I and mean, you've done some good work, you know, the stars or the galaxies or whatever. 
but this thing with men and women, I don't think it's right. Well, why is that? God might say, well, because they're not equal. They're not the same. Now, God's saying, of course, that's the point. They're not supposed to be. But this charge comes up, if equality equals worth, then God, you've done something wrong by the woman. Right? And that's essentially what we're saying today. Generally, both in the church and in the culture. That thought is, of course, the temptation account in Genesis 3. When Satan comes to Eve, not to Adam, he comes to Eve. He comes underneath and he tells her, right, this is the temptation. God is withholding something good from you. You could be bigger, better, more than you are. God's holding you down in this position he's created for you, and not just related to the man, in her humanity. And if you'll do this, you'll become something bigger, someone better, someone more significant and important. If you'll rise, if you'll ascend out of this lower level God's made you, you can become like God himself. And of course, that temptation and then the fall that followed sowed the seeds of all the sin and death that's ever existed on the world right down to this day. So we're on the last of a very short series, three messages only on authority and submission. If you missed the first two, let me catch up real quickly. Week one, we listened to that great theologian of the last century, Bob Dylan, when he told us, you got to serve somebody. You remember the song, memorable song. It's been helpful to me. You got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your status is, you're always serving the God of this world or the God of light. You're in the God of this world's kingdom or you're in the kingdom of light, God's light. It's incontrovertible. It can't be otherwise. So the question week one was, who are we serving? Who are we serving? Week two, we looked at a variety of those relationships of authority and submission. And we looked at each one of them to see what the general rule was. What had God called us to in our relationships of authority and submission? And we saw that if we're in a position of submission, and we're talking about a theme that says authority and submission, we're focusing on submission because that's the thing that's most in debate today. But in the context of submission, if I'm in a relationship in which I'm the submissive partner or role, then I'm called to submit to, to follow, to respect, to obey the authority God's put over me unless that lesser authority tells me to either do what God forbids or forbids me to do what God commands. So that's the general parameters. That was week two. This morning, and the reason I think Larry prayed for me is we're talking about men and women this morning, if you can't guess that already, uh, looking at the roles of authority and submission related to male and female. I said, I think in week two, this is the most hotly debated issue in any of the authority and submission roles. It's men and women, it's husbands and wives, it's women's roles in the church, it's women's roles in the culture broadly. <clears throat> I'll just say I have no ax to grind on this. I think scripture is pretty clear. I have no problem saying this is what God's word says. I don't think the difficulty for us is what God's word said. It's the challenge from our own mind and our own temptations, but we'll walk th through some of this. So I have no ax to grind. By the way, I was listening to a gal this morning on television she was preaching. I don't think that's a role God's called her to fill. But you know what? I could tell she had a great heart. She was biblically informed, and it was, it was good stuff. I'm not speaking against those who hold a view that I don't hold or that I think Scripture is absolutely clear on. So the church is Christ's church, right? We love the body of Christ. We love our brothers and sisters in the faith, whether we agree on every point of doctrine or not. There might be restrictions in how free we are 
in interacting with others or supporting ministries or being coming alongside others that we disagree with on one point or another. There are repercussions there. But we're not saying by the position we hold that we're somehow relegating other Christians to secondhand inferior status, less loved by God the Father, less saved, saved by Jesus, okay? So we'll say what the scriptures I think clearly say and uh, go from there and hopefully we come out with a clarity in our own mind as well as a sense of God's grace towards everyone in the body of Christ. So one of the reasons that I'm starting with Genesis and I'm gonna qualify things here a couple different ways. Have you ever come into an argument and you hear part of the argument and so you join in and you make a statement and it's only later that you realize your statement was off because you didn't get in on the discussion from the beginning. That's what happens on this issue with male and female relationships related to authority and submission if we don't start, one, from Genesis, from the creation account, and two, if we don't qualify it in a couple other ways so that people today will hear Christians or Mike or the church or others inferring something, if not saying it directly, that we are not saying because they didn't get in on the front of the discussion. So the qualifiers on the front end are to make sure that at least in our discussion this morning, we're making sure that we frame the issue the way God has framed it, okay? We're not jumping in on the middle of a discussion. So the first qualifier I've got on your study sheet there, marred but not broken. It's important to remember that hierarchy was part of God's original very good creation. That Adam as the head and Eve as the helper was part of God's very good creation. There was nothing wrong with a difference in role without imputing inferiority of, or one of the other. Remember that in the Genesis 1:27 verse, it says we're making man in our image, male and female. Female is no less in the image of God than male. There was no disrespect, there was no God subjugating in some unhealthy, unholy way, even the role she, he had called her to. So that hierarchy that you see, Adam as the federal head, Eve as the helper, that was part of God's very good creation. That wasn't part of the fall. Now guys, if you read the literature, I'm, and I'm talking about conferences, commentaries, denominational standards, television, you name it, uh, many of those who uh, will call themselves Christian feminists will argue that hierarchy and positions of authority specifically related to male and female were part of the fall. And you simply can't get that from the Bible. It doesn't exist. It's not the creation account. What is inarguable is this. Both authority and submission in relationships between men and women have been horribly damaged, diminished because of the fall and the consequent sin right down to today. So hierarchy, authority and submission, those are not dirty words. That was part of God's very good original creation. But after the fall, everything gets damaged. The image of God in us is marred and it's also marred in the relationship, the hierarchy between husbands and wives, uh, men and women in all kinds of ways. And, and all of us would have multi multiple stories, I'm sure, personally and broadly on some of the ways you've seen that at work, maybe in your own families growing up, maybe in the relationships you, you know with people at work or at school. And you say, man, this thing is ugly. And it is, oftentimes it is. It doesn't have to be, but it's certainly been terribly marred. What we want to understand though is this for sure, 
the further we move away from God's very good original design, the more distorted the image of God in us becomes, the more marred our relationships are. The further you get away after the fall from God's original very good design for men and women and their interaction with each other, you don't get liberation and freedom, you get bondage. You're not uh, you're more broken, you're not whole, you're more compromised, not enabled, you're unhappier, not more joyful. If we redefine roles away from God's call and authority and submission, we further cripple ourselves and we further mar the very good image of God in our humanity. And by the way, we see this today in the roles between men and women, um, above all others probably. So, the image of God in our humanity, male and female, is broken, it's marred, but it still exists. It's just in a very broken state. The second qualifier is this, submission doesn't equal inferiority. Guys, I've said these at least briefly in the first two messages. I'm, I'm consciously saying them again today because this is part of framing the issue. If we don't get these things, then nothing else makes sense. The image of the Trinity is the image of our humanity. And you remember we've said repeatedly over years here, in the Trinity you have plurality in unity. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when you do theology proper and you look at how the, how the scriptures, how God describes himself within the Trinity, you see functionally that the Father generally originates what we call the will of God. You see the Son carrying out the Father's will, and you see the Spirit enabling or making sure all of that comes to pass. The Son is no less God than the Father. The Spirit is no less God than the Son or the Father. The Father is not more God than the Spirit or the Son. So what we say is in their deity, they are absolutely equal, but in their role or function, they are complementary. They are different. If you look at Psalm 2, which is one of the key messianic passages in the Old Testament, the Father says to the Son, I'm appointing you as my king. The Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world as your own. The Son is the submissive element. He's different in his role than the Father, but he's no less God. And so we want to make sure that we understand submission does not imply inferiority. It doesn't in the Trinity, and it doesn't in our humanity either. In fact, if you look at the role, we'll wind down talking about Jesus and the church, but if you look at the role of, the, of Adam and Eve, the husband and the wife, generally the, the wife had this complementary supportive role. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is called uh, the helper, the same thing Eve is called. This is not a position of inferiority any less than Jesus the Son is inferior to God the Father. So we want to make sure that we're clear on both of those. You've got some scripture references on your Bible. And I'd say too, the Lion and Lamb membership statement, if, if Lion and Lamb is your home and you've said so, it's just simply formally or quasi-formally in membership. You've already read this statement. I'll read it here briefly. We affirm a, a form of orthodoxy that all the early church affirmed, and it's this. There's one God, the creator and sustainer of all things, this God is a trinity of persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is eternally existent, but diverse in operation. They don't do the same things, but equal in essence and deity. Those phrases, diverse but equal, that applies to our humanity as male and female as well. So we want to make sure 
we're all on the same page there. And just to give an exclamation to the same point, if you look through the pages of the scripture, you'll see God affirming women as often and as fully in a way as he does men. So you'll see Sarah and Rahab lauded in Hebrews 11, the chapter of God's faithful, just like you'll see Moses or Joshua. You remember Sarah had faith at 90 to bear a son. And Rahab, who'd been a Gentile prostitute, had faith to say, I know the God of Israel is God, and I'm on his side. And if you go through the accounts, especially the Old Testament, you'll see people like Jochebed, Moses' mother. It's her, it's not Amram, her husband, that's credited with saving Moses, putting him in the little ark, making sure older sister Miriam observes where he is and that he's taken care of. You'll see Miriam leading the women of Israel in the celebration of praise after the Red Sea crossing. You'll see Hannah, Ruth. Also, by the way, Rahab and Ruth both are in the line of Jesus. They are grandmothers of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> Esther helped save Israel in the Persian Empire period. Do you get into the New Testament? Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, not as the Roman Catholics teach, but she's this, this um, example, exemplary example of someone saying to God, I'm your servant, whatever you want, that's what I'll do. A key to me in Luke's gospel, it says that the women were the financial supporters of Jesus. It specifically says that. Not men, not a group of men, but it says the women who followed him were supporting him and the disciples. It's also interesting that at the cross, when many of the disciples and the apostles had fled, it was women at the cross of Jesus until he died. It's women that helped make sure he got buried along with Joseph. And it's women that he first appeared to after the resurrection. They're the first to come check on his body. They're the first to see Jesus alive. So we want to make sure throughout the pages of the Bible, you'll see God affirming females in the same way he does males for faith, for simply being part of what he's up to, his program, his way. So with all that, 20 minutes into our message on men and women, we start the passages that probably are most challenging for us. Ephesians 5, I want to start with uh, the role of men and women in marriage, authority and submission in the realm of marriage. You see this in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is the key text in all the New Testament on this relationship. And before I forget, let me say this. In the creation account, God says, I'm stamping, we're stamping our image on humanity as male and female. Okay, that's the image of God on us in male and female. In Ephesians 5, God says, besides what I'm getting to here in a moment, he says that the image of the Son and the Bride of Christ are stamped on our marriages. That one reflects the other. That one is an image of the other. Just as male and female Adam and Eve reflected the reality, the image of the Trinity, husbands and wives are meant to reflect the ultimate eternal reality of God the Son, the head of his body, his bride, the church. And that's the language you see in Ephesians 5. So briefly, I'm not going to read the whole passage. I want to emphasize the issues related to our topic today, submission and authority. Verse 24, it says, the church, as the church submits to Christ, that's the role, that's the paradigm, wives should submit to husbands in everything. Verse 33, see that she respects her husbands. So we asked this last week, when should a wife respect or submit to the leadership of her husband, according to God's word, not Mike, in everything, all the time. 
Again, the qualifier is there. Uh, if, if any authority commands you to do something that requires you to disobey God, you don't do it. It doesn't matter if it's marriage, politics, business, whatever. That would apply here too. Does this mean the wife is a doormat for her husband? And this is the argument today. Submission equals inferiority. That's the implication. If a wife submits to her husband, if that's the role she's called to, it sort of means she's this unnecessary element who does the dishes and provides children and that's all sort of thing. And you say, well, if you look at the relationship of Christ and the church, is that what you see there? Because that's the image of a husband and wife relationship. <laughs> Ephesians 5 says, Christ presents the church to himself in glory. The church is in Christ's eyes by his doing is glorious. That's the image for a, a mother and a wife in a marriage family relationship. It's not mundane. Everybody does chores, right? Kids do chores. Men do chores. Everybody works. That's not the issue. Women aren't consigned to doormat status because they've got the submissive role. In fact, <laughs> um, Proverbs 31, you know, it says that, one, it says a couple things. A good woman's hard to find. And that's not an indictment on, on women. It's just that a good woman's hard to find. Well, guess what? A good wife is harder to find. In fact, it says you can't buy one. If you, if you had a limitless checking account, you can't buy a good wife. But God can give you a good wife, Proverbs says. And Proverbs 31 says, A godly wife is more valuable than jewels. If you're a wealthy man and sold all your wealth, you couldn't buy her, but God will give you that kind. That's her worth. She's above jewels. You can't estimate her wealth to a husband. So there's no sense in the scriptures that wives are called to what is now projected in our culture as doormat status. I think it's later. I hope I remember to talk about, uh, I think I will. Anyway, about uh, Proverbs 31 again. Uh, a, a wife is a partner in life with her husband. They're praying together. They're making decisions together. They're sharing life's up and downs together. There's not inferiority. There's difference in roles, but there's in both directions, it's meant to be complementary. You know, we're not talking about the authority uh, issues so much in these uh, three messages today, but the flip side is the husband. If the husband is not laying down his life for his wife in Christ-like, service, he's not being a good leader. That the role of a husband is not to be the Lord who sits in his chair and commands wife and children. It's of the one who's sacrificing at his cost, his expense, for the benefit of his wife and his children. It's Christ-like, humble servant leadership. Now, if you lead guys like that, you'll find it's pretty easy for your wife to feel like submission's not such a bad thing. It's a pretty good thing if you have that kind of leadership. Also, we want to point out from verse 22, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 do not teach that women submit to men, okay? It's that a wife submits to her husband. This text does not teach that women submit to men. I want to be clear on this. It's not women to men. It's wife to husband. It's in fact, in the Greek, it's her man, not somebody else's man, not men in general. We'll talk about this here in just a minute. She submits to her husband, not men in general. That's, a, that's important. That's key. So how about this? So someone says, you know, 
the reference there is cut off. First uh, Peter 3, someone says, you know, but I've got a problem because um, I married a guy and I thought he was a Christian. It turns out he's not. Or I became a Christian later in life and uh, I was already married and my husband, he didn't come to Christ. And so I've got this situation where I can't really submit because my husband, he's not that godly, Christ-like Christian leader. And God says, well, yeah, actually you still can because the model's the same. So in 1 Peter 3, it says this, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not Christians or they don't live like Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And notice that. It's not an argument. It's not a wife talking her husband into the kingdom or into obedience or into faithfulness. It's conduct. It's her example. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God, Old Testament gals like we looked at earlier, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So Peter says a wife doesn't have authority to compel her husband, but what she has is conduct to win her husband. So he says, don't go into an argument, but by your gentle, quiet spirit, you're showing you're submissive to your husband. You're not creating unnecessary friction. You're winning him, Peter says, without a word. By the way, this is not a 100% promise, okay? You can have <laughs> people in this room, I'm sure, have raised children who today aren't following Christ, and they quote Proverbs, and they say, train up a child in the way you should go, and it'll never depart. And you're like, what? It's a, it's a generality, and we pray that. But just like this, you may say, I've, I've tried to win my husband forever and he hasn't been won. And I'd say, well, keep at it because that's your faithfulness ultimately to God. Don't know, don't know 100% what will come of some of the husbands. Uh, in 1 Samuel 25, Abigail is one of the loveliest uh, women, I think, in all the Bible. She's uh, in this story in which she is clearly a believer and her husband Nabal is not. This is a good paradigm of 1 Peter 3. And he's a lousy guy, a lousy husband, a lousy man, a lousy person in general. But what you'll see in that story is Abigail, that lousy guy's wife, acts in his best interest. In fact, guys, she disobeys her husband directly. She absolutely disobeys what he'd said to do in order to save his life and the lives of those in their extended household. She's this quiet, submissive woman. She ends up being one of David's wives, but she is this lovely paradigm of a woman operating under authority for the best of those that she was serving. She's just an ex excellent example of that. Other things you can do, and the first thing, the most important thing, would be to pray for your husband. If you have a husband who claims to be a Christian but doesn't walk with the Lord, or if you have a husband that says, I'm not a Christian, the best thing you can do is pray for them. Right? God can do things whether you're there or I'm there or anyone else. So prayer is not the last resort. It's the first resort. We pray. We give our situation to God. We pray. We submit that to him. And we ask God to intervene in ways we can't. And that's great, by the way. In any relationship in which we're the submissive party, you can always pray. God is the ultimate authority. And you remember in Proverbs when it says, the heart of the king is like water in God's hand. The king is the most powerful person around. If God can turn the heart of a king, the most powerful man on earth, 
easily, like me turning water in my hand, do you think he might be able to help you in whatever that relationship is where you're in submission to an authority that is not doing it well, that's blowing it? Prayer is a good thing. That's the most commendable thing to do. So we say, in the home, wives submit to, they respect their leader, okay? Their husband, their husband, not someone else's. How about in the church? First <clears throat> Timothy 2 uh, is an epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. Timothy's on assignment at this time to the church in Ephesus. So these things are going to be implemented in the church in Ephesus. And in chapter 2, he's talking about the meeting of the church. The church gets together collectively. What does that look like? And he says, earlier in chapter 2, I want the men to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. He says, I want women to adorn themselves with godliness uh, not, uh, modestly. It's not, a, it's not a fashion show when we go to church. It's not about one-upsmanship uh, when we go to church and we can display my, my costly gold or all the other things. But it's about humility. So in that context of the church, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So just very broadly, Paul says here, in the church, so talked about the home, in the church, women don't, collectively, women don't teach men. They don't exercise authority over men. We could say sort of as a catch-all, women don't uh, exercise leadership over men in the church. That's sort of the catch-all. In Lion and Lamb, we usually make that distinction about high school level uh, that if a guy's that old, it's usually men that are teaching him. So below that, this is men, right? So in the church, women are not exercising authority or leadership over men. I want to mention another text. It's a sticky wicket, and I don't have time to develop the whole thing, but it should be pointed out. 1 Corinthians 14 is summing up a section of chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 that deal with the meetings of the church and certain particular kinds of meetings of the church. In chapter 14, as this winds down, Paul writes this, the women should keep silent in the churches, kind of a blanket statement. They're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. The reference to the law is a little uh, ambiguous also. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Here's the sticky wicket. So if you just said you got that passage, say, okay, women don't speak in church. The difficulty is this is the culmination of four chapters that deal with the meeting of the church. In the first chapter, chapter 11, women in the context of the church are praying out loud publicly and prophesying out loud publicly in the meeting of the church. The only caveat on that was Paul said when they do so, they should wear a veil, a head covering, because just like in the Muslim world today, at that time, a head covering showed submission. So that's an issue there, and you'll read about that in chapter 11. But in the meeting of the church, the women are praying. They are prophesying. Yet you've got this verse in chapter 14 that says, it's shameful for women to speak in the church. I'm only bringing it up because it's a text that sort of uh, fences in women's role in a church meeting. This is my understanding. One passage, women are praying and prophesying. The other passage, they're being silent. In chapter 11, 
They are praying and prophesying. They're simply doing so in a humble attitude. In 14, when the second prohibition comes up, it's in the context, it follows directly on, if someone prays in a tongue, two or three, at the most three, with an interpretation. If a prophecy is given, two or at the most three, and then it says, and let the others or the rest judge. And this is what I take to be happening. The women were praying and prophesying on one hand, but when it came to determining what a prophecy meant or how it was to be fulfilled or followed up on or neglected or whatever, women weren't part of the authoritative decision-making on church doctrine and practice. So that's Mike's take. You've got a text in there you've got to do something with. I will tell you, feminists say that these verses were inserted after the original document. Some do, some very good ones actually, after the original document was written. I, I just don't think it holds water. There's a reason that many of us don't want that passage to be there. It's, it's there and you need to do something with it. So in the church, we say something like this from this passage, uh, women aren't speaking as authorities on matters of doctrine and practice. So we could say in God's house, the church, God's daughters don't teach men. They don't exercise authority over men. Okay? I'm going to go one step further because it's another issue today. What about parachurch organizations? What about denominations? What about Christian colleges? What about Christian seminaries and universities? Are you guys doing okay too, by the way? I can't read your faces too well this morning. Okay. So, <clears throat> so this is Mike's, I'm giving you some of my opinions, right? You might take, talk to one of the other elders and they, they might take what I'm saying and give a different, different take. But I simply want to say something so we've, we've acknowledged some challenges that are talked about in conversations you've either had in the past or you will have. What about those, the parachurch, para alongside, they're coming alongside the church to help with the mission of the church. And this is my down and dirty quick take. Jesus left no parachurches on the earth. He left no denominations on the church. He left no Bible colleges. He left no seminaries, no universities. Jesus left one thing on the earth. He left the church. When you say something's a parachurch or a denomination or anything else like that, you're saying something that's coming alongside the church to do the work of the church, the mission of the church. For myself, I have no problem saying I think the same relationship that God ordains for the church, I, I think they should be a applied in the parachurch, the universities, the seminaries, etc. And some places around the country they are and some they aren't. That is, in, if, if the role is authoritatively leading, uh, explaining, giving doctrine, speaking as an authority figure in parachurch, Christian universities, in spiritual matters, right? I don't think women should be exercising those roles, but they are across the country and across the world. Uh, how about authority and submission outside the church? And guys, there's a, a lengthy list of resources you can follow up on. I have spoken on this issue twice in some length in a couple of other series, and those are listed on your study sheet. This is an image I have from one of those. Uh, what you'll see in the world, the relationship of authority and submission between a husband and wife and between men and women in the church does not hold in the broader world. God does not enjoin this on the world in general, right? Women aren't called to submit to men generally. Women who aren't Christians aren't called to submit to elders in a local church. Broadly in the culture, what we're talking about here isn't applied. And I don't believe it ever has been applied. Israel in the Old Testament's a little different, but uh, we're not going there. So in the world today, women can do and are 
They're leading businesses. They're leading nations. They're in science. They're in tech. They're in all of these fields of endeavor. And I don't believe that God's word precludes them from those relationships. These are my stellar examples of women. These are current women. Two of them have died, but uh, Marissa Myers of Yahoo, and she's multi-multi-million dollar CEO. Uh, she helped parcel out Yahoo at the end, but um, she was an amazing business leader. Maggie Thatcher, arguably for me, behind Winston Churchill, the greatest prime minister in England in the last hundred years, and Golda Meir, an American-born product, uh, grown and raised here, went to Israel and became the prime minister. Those, she led Israel through one of its many wars. I just use these as examples to say Women aren't limited in their abilities. And in the broad world, you don't see women limited by this, by what I think is a straitjacket view or caricature of men and women or male and female in the relationships from the Bible. I don't think the scriptures straitjacket women the way many people accuse us of in the broader world. In Proverbs 31, you, you have this model of a woman that has both blessed and cursed women through the ages. Blessed because it's this noble um, image to aspire to. Cursed because she seems out of reach of mere mortal women. But if you look at that ideal, what you see is she's a wife that blesses her husband. She's a mother. She oversees her household, which includes servants. She's in business because she's buying and selling fields. She's making investments. She's selling product. You get the picture. This is a capable woman. And she's not relegated to the role only of being a a wife and a mom. She's a business person, an entrepreneur. She's a shrewd, sharp person. This is the ideal feminine in the Old Testament. So in the world today, women can and are exercising all kinds of gift and authority. Civil, politics, business, it's going on. I don't see any restriction on that in God's word with this proviso. Let me just share this. So a gal might say, I feel called to do something. And then to me, it's just like a guy saying, is it what God's really called me to do? And is it when God's called me to do it? So if we're good on those, roll ahead with this proviso. This is Mike's opinion again. There are roles that women can do and often do that I would argue ideally they wouldn't because the role or the activity argues against their own feminine nature. So, for me, key example, women in the military with guns fighting the enemy, I don't think is an ideal role for a woman. I think it argues against her feminine nature. Men are called to be aggressive defenders of hearth and home. That's a role generally that God didn't give women. And so I think men can act in a way that's less manly. That's not a good thing. Women can act in a way that's less womanly, and that's not a good thing. So just generally, one of the questions I think that we should ask ourselves, men or women, is what I'm doing, is it consistent with the male or female nature and character God's given me and by which or through which I honor him? So that'd be my proviso there. Also this, uh, before I wind that down, if you're a man and you're in a business or you're in the service or academia or whatever, and your boss is a female, she deserves no less submission and respect than if your boss is a man. She's your boss. She's your superior. Whatever that role is, we don't sort of give a second-rate respect to a woman who's our authority over us because she's a woman. 
It's the same as if she were a man. The office, the position, is what we give respect to. I'm throwing this in because I hope this is helpful in a bigger picture, bigger framework. We focus all of our discussion and all the heat and all the fire on this issue relates to life on the earth. What about in eternity? What does this look like? Now, Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about what eternity looks like, number one. But Jesus did make a reference in Matthew's gospel and also in Mark's. It's in the context of resurrection. And Jesus says, in the resurrection, men and women don't get married. They don't marry each other. But they're like the angels. My assumption is this. In eternity, there isn't male and female authority and submission. Be because the partial, the temporary that was never meant to be more than partial and temporary is done away with when the eternal or the consummation comes. The consummation of men and women, Adam and Eve, male and female is Christ and the church. So in the body of Christ, Christ is the man and the rest of us are members of his body like the female role. And if you're a man, you're in that position and if you're a woman, you're in that position in eternity. So the authority submission relationship we're talking about today, I don't believe you can find carries over into eternity. I think what you see is that Christ takes that ultimate position of authority. All of us become like the female role. We are under his authority in submission to him. So on the earth, in marriage, in the church, women are called to helping supportive roles. That supportive role is part of the very good creation God rejoiced in. I want to wind down with two things, and the first is to acknowledge failure. <clears throat> One of the reasons that it's so easy to argue that there shouldn't be hierarchical roles in marriage or in the church is because of the failures of those in positions of authority. Paige Patterson is the latest Christian evangelical leader to bite the dust. Now, let me tell you, I have a ton of respect for Paige Patterson, and, and I'll just let me explain this, okay? This guy's been a stalwart in the Southern Baptist Convention for decades. He is part of the reason the Southern Baptist denomination returned to its conservative biblical roots. Apart from Paige Patterson and Al Mohler, that probably wouldn't have happened. And the Southern Baptists would be just like the other denominations that are liberal theologically and biblically and of no use to anyone. So Paige Patterson was the head, former head of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's been the president of two Southern Baptist seminaries, most frequently Southwest Baptist in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So before this incident, I wouldn't have thought there was anything to naysay Paige Patterson for because he's been that kind of a stand-up godly guy. A month or two ago, a recording of a teaching he gave almost 20 years ago came to light. And in the recording, he was preaching and he was saying a couple things. He said, I never, I never counsel divorce. And that's a qualified position. Our church has positions on that. That's a little qualified position. But then, this is what he said. A woman came up to me in an abusive relationship in a marriage. Her husband was beating her. And Paige Patterson said, don't divorce him. Stay home with that guy and win him, 1 Peter 3. So she comes to church later. She has the bruises to prove she's been beaten again. But her husband is with her. And so Mr. Patterson says, you see, God was in it. Now, I would just tell you, I would just tell you, neither I nor the leaders of this church would countenance a woman to stay in an abusive relationship. 
period. Or children. That is not godly oversight. And there's a key sense in which authority throws its, its uh, raison to tear, its reason for authority out the window when you see this kind of abuse. So that teaching came up. Further investigation found when he was president of, an, of the First Baptist uh, Seminary College uh, on the East Coast, I forget the name, on two different occasions, women, students on his campus had been raped or sexually assaulted. They talked to Paige Patterson and he said, don't report this to the civil authorities because the guys are Christians on this campus. Inexcusable, inexcusable. Now he has feet of clay like we all do. I'm just using him, I almost hate to pile on. I almost wasn't gonna put his picture up here. His feet of clay, bad judgment, absolutely. Defensible, not at all. We're not saying anything that we support. In fact, the failures today in positions of authority make you not only cringe, but if you're in leadership, they're just this great reminder, I've got to be so prayerful, so careful about what we're encouraging or prohibiting or whatever that we don't do things like this. That those under our leadership don't suffer because of our leadership. And that's certainly been going on. So to close... Um, the relationship of Jesus and the church, guys, that's what we're ultimately going to, right? God's image was stamped on us, male and female, but Christ and the church's image is stamped on us in our marriage relationships. The sons and the daughters of God occupy these complementary spheres in the church itself, but we've got our own proud, sinful nature that rebels against all of this in any position of submission. And we've got the temptation of the enemy today, no less than in Eve's day, saying God has a better plan for you than you do. Now, I do want to say, based uh, Larry said earlier, we'll be downstairs. If you want to chat 10 minutes after service, uh, we'll talk more about this. Some of you are nice enough to give me some response and some questions. There's no time today to deal with those here, but I will cover those downstairs afterwards. And I want to close with this. In Matthew 11:29, 29, God the Son who created the heavens and the earth... <laughs> John 1 and Colossians 1. God the Son who created the heavens and the earth. God the Son who spoke creation into existence. God the Son who said we're going to make a male and female and did. Comes down to the earth in this submissive role to his father. And while there, in a contentious debate with Jewish leaders, Jesus says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now just stop there for a second. A yoke is a symbol of work, of labor. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the truth. These are the facts. When you and I try and take on authority that God didn't give us, we are loading ourselves with a burden God never meant us to bear. When we come humbly to Christ and put on the easy yoke, he's created for us, he's doing all the work, we're sort of sidekicks, what you find is rest for your soul. You don't find that somehow I'm less than I was, I'm more. You don't find that I'm relegated to some second-rate position. You find that Christ liberates me. I have rest, I have peace, I have joy because I'm walking with the Spirit. And that means learning from Jesus who's meek and lowly in soul. Guys, if Jesus is meek and lowly, we can be too. Whatever position that is, of authority or submission, meek and lowly in authority, and meek and lowly in submission.
Father, would you help us to embrace the nature and the character of Christ? Though he was God, he didn't seek to lay hold or maintain that position or that claim on deity status, Lord, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself further, Lord, taking the position of a slave and a thief on the cross all for our sake. Lord, because of that, you were pleased to heap all glory and honor on him in eternity. Father, would you help each of us in whatever role and sphere you've called us to today, authoritative or submissive, would you help us to exercise those roles, Lord, with the kind of, of humility that Jesus displayed? Would you help us come to Christ as those who have met him at the cross? Would you help us to gain that rest for our souls that we always need? Would you help us to glorify you in whatever place, whatever role you've given us? In Jesus' name, amen.